If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill, busting myths and taking names. Hello there, Buzzkillers. It's the old professor here. We are very, very close to the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. And with us in the Buzzkill Bunker to examine this and examine all the myths about Pearl Harbor is, of course, our favorite historian, Professor Phil Nash from Penn State, our expert on 20th century diplomacy, world wars, and U.S. foreign relations. Professor, how are you? Thanks for coming back, by the way. You've been here You were here a few weeks ago and then a few weeks before that. It's been, it's been a- My you know, pleasure. Always, always, always find it cozy here in the bunker. Your Buzzkill, um, you know, frequent flyer card is being, <laughs> is really piling up. Oh, the- oh, I'm going to be cashing those in soon, so you watch out. <laughs> That's, that's great. Well, one of the things I we really like to do on this show, of course, is promote when our our experts are not only talking about these things on the show, but publishing books about it and, and talking about it in other media. And you're used very often to explain these Pearl Harbor myths and World War One myth, uh, World War Two myths in in other media, radio and things like that. Exactly. You? For example, it's the uh, well, not for example. The example is the Ron Eric show, which is on right. AM radio uh, in the Shenango Valley. It's uh, seven ninety WPIC dot com. Right. Uh, in fact, I'll be on again in December, I believe, talking about the Supreme Court of all. Subjects. Oh no, kidding! Now we're giving away our coordinates, of course, so that uh, now we have to put the buzzkill. Uh, Andy aircraft guns on top of the the bunker so that the people who hate us can't bomb us in the middle of nowhere. But of course, it's true. So the Pearl Harbor is, of course, one of the most iconic moments. It's one of the most iconic dates in American history. Certainly, everyone hears December seventh, nineteen forty one, as if it's like September eleventh, two thousand. That's one of those dates yeah. people actually know. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, and and I suppose it. it it does have this kind of importance, but let's let's of course lay out the ground or the or the or the sort of basics of what happened and, and the build up to it for nineteen forty one for the buzzkiller, so we know what we're talking about. Sure, yeah, it was the culmination of a long sort of growing conflict between the United States and the Japanese in the Pacific. The Japanese, by the early nineteen thirties, have become an expansionist militarist power. They want to establish what they call the Greater East Asia Co Prosperity Sphere. In East oh, Asia, which a is nice a, euphemism. yeah, it's a totally euphemism because this was not about co-prosperity. This was about Japanese prosperity <laughs> at the expense of the locals. Uh, lots of analogies between the Japanese and the Germans, actually. They or the Nazis, I should say, because the Japanese saw themselves as racially superior, right, to yes. other people in the region. They thought that people like Chinese and Southeast Asians uh, should be working for them for their prosperity. 
So by as of 1931, Japan is a militarist power. It's a dissatisfied power. They feel like they don't have the empire they deserve. Oh, okay. Their view of the United States is you're a satisfied power. You dominate Latin America. You already have what you want. We don't have that yet. You should sort of stand by as we get what you have. That's the way, I don't share that view, but that's how they looked at it. They, hmm. you know, and the United States did have an informal empire in Latin America. We dominated Latin America. We benefited economically from it. And the Japanese said, we just want the same thing, and one will take it by conquest, and you shouldn't get in the way. And they looked at the British Empire of the, sure. of earlier and said, right. yeah, and yeah, they're an island nation, That's, similar those, sort of these thing. These are all the signs of a great power. Also, Japan had, it was a very, you know, it's a small island chain, heavily crowded, overpopulated by people, and resource poor. They had to import food. Oh, of course. They had yeah. to import the raw materials for industrialization, like steel and oil. They did not have these things. So kind of like the British, they're dependent on the outside world for their resources, especially if you're going to continue to modernize, industrialize, and expand. And for example, to expand, you need a big military. So you need all these modern materials uh, to get ahead. So in 1931, they start their expansionist ball rolling by invading Manchuria, which is part of China. Mm -hmm. They invade it from Korea, which the Japanese had occupied since 1910. Right. They can, And then in 1937, they invade China proper. Uh, after that, they start engaging in truly atrocious behavior, such as the rape of Nanjing, which is a very inf infamous sure. incident. They they kill hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians, ultimately millions. And the whole time, the United States is watch watching all of this, uh, not intervening, but watching this with increasing concern. A lot of Americans had a very paternalistic attitude toward the Chinese, even though we legally barred Chinese from immigration to the United States between 1882 and 1943. Yeah. We, we, a lot of missionaries, American missionaries, had spent time in China. You had best-selling books like The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Oh, yeah, hugely popular. Which helped um, spread this view that the Chinese are sort of, uh, they're not equal to us, but they're sort of honorable and they deserve our protection, especially against the evil Japanese. And so there was a fair amount of attention paid to Japanese expansion in the Pacific. Uh, certainly that is true 1940-41 when the Japanese take advantage of the fact that France has fallen and French Indochina, the so-called French balcony on the Pacific, which is today Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Right. This area was now exposed to Japanese expansion because the French weren't in a position to protect their colony. Well, so the dying aspects of the French Empire. Exactly right. And so the Japanese in phases, first in the summer of 1940, they occupy, uh, without firing a shot, they, the military moves into northern Indochina, they occupy the bases there. Fr the French uh, administration remains in place. But the Japanese movement militarily, this is very alarming to the Americans because this is a new direction of conquest towards Southeast Asia. And it threatens the balance of power. Threatens the balance of power. And that's, that's the bottom line for the Americans is that both in Europe and in Japan, they're interested in no one power becoming too dominant. In Asia, it's also different because we have a formal possession in that area known as the Philippines. Yes, we had already set it on the road to independence, but that's way in the future. At this point, it's still, it has sort of semi-independence. And, and it had been part of a war against another imperial power. Exactly. Early, we, yeah. we had taken down the Spanish in 1898, and we had taken big chunks of their empire, including the Philippines. And so this, this projects American power into East Asia, and now we have to defend it. And so as the Japanese go on the warpath and expand into places like French Indochina, that makes us feel more threatened in the Philippines and more threatened by Japanese power in general. And so here in the summer of 1940s where we start to use our economic weapon, 
we embargo steel shipments to the Japanese. They huge, oh. I forget the exact number, the huge percentage of their scrap steel came from the United States and we cut it off. And so we're that's, using, oh, that's amazing. We're using an economic weapon. We're trying to pressure them economically and hoping to avoid military conflict with them, hoping to get them to back off. And this is 1940. This is 1940. Uh, at the same time, we relocate our very large and very powerful U.S. Pacific fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor. Okay. Hawaii was not a state yet, but it was in the U.S. possession, had a fabulous natural harbor known as Pearl Harbor. It's a great anchorage in the middle of the Pacific. This was to deter the Japanese, right? Because our, our Navy is in a much better position to intervene if we're halfway across the Pacific already and not all the way on the other side of it. Oh, sure. At the very least, it's a staging ground. Right. And this is classic. This is our strategy 101. You see this in many, many cases in history. It's an action you undertake hoping to deter someone can actually do the opposite. It can invite attack. Oh. Right? In other words, the same fact that puts our navy in a position to intervene also makes it so the japanese are in a position to attack our navy right think of it this way if our if our navy's in san diego does the, does the japanese launch an attack probably not not against san diego no because it's like eight thousand miles right much harder to do in any case we hope to deter them ultimately that does not work uh they're certainly not deterred in the short term the following year summer 1941 the japanese occupy the rest of indochina yeah, it was the southern part, all the way around the area around Saigon, for example. And then the Americans just turned the screws even harder, much harder. We have froze, freeze all of their economic assets in the United States, mm -hmm. kind of thing. All, all of them. Okay, we we do that today too. It's a way, of, it's a classic way of putting on economic pressure. Yeah, sure, sure. More importantly, we cut off all of the oil shipments. Oh, right. Ninety percent of Japanese crude oil came from the United States. 90%. Yeah, so and, th and this is not just about expansion. This is just about operations, right? Mm -hmm, to keep mm -hmm. their Navy operational, they need oil, and we are cutting off, that, we're turning off that spigot. And, you know, it's not as if they have a fantastic oil resource. No, in fact, I don't, I'm not aware that they have any of their oil from either Japan or China. The only wow. option after that for them is the Dutch East Indies, which is today is Indonesia, much mm -hmm. further to the south of French Indochina, huge island chain. Sure. Also exposed, right? Because Holland's been knocked out of the war. There are Dutch forces there, but they wouldn't be, as we'll see, there won't be the match, any match for the Japanese. Well, this is one of the, the aspects of European theater playing out in the exactly Pacific Exactly right. And so, and here's, here's where the, all the, the dominoes start to fall. Because the Japanese, we, we make it clear that we will open up the oil and the steel spigot and unfreeze your assets if you not only pull out of French Indochina, but pull out of China. Oh, okay. I would argue that this is where the United States is making a mistake. Because at, at the same time, it's, it's uh, the odds of it getting involved in the European war are also going up. Mm -hmm. This is a time you want to put the conflict with Japan on the back burner, but we're being extremely aggressive with our economic weapon. And okay. we are in a in essence asking this Japanese to give up 10 years of conquest. That's which, right. Which yes. once again is like asking the Japanese at that point not to be the Japanese anymore. Right. Now I'm not blaming the United States for Pearl Harbor. No. I'm saying that our diplomacy could have been a little more savvy. Okay. Because the Japanese, I mean the Japanese decide, okay, well, we're going to get our oil somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to get it from the Dutch East Indies. We'll have to take it militarily. Yeah. That they understand, and they're right. That they understand will mean war with the United States. Okay. Oh, oh, over even the Dutch East yes. Indies. Yes. Okay. That okay. They understand that that would have been the last straw for the Americans. So then the question in Tokyo becomes, okay, if we're going to go to war against the Americans, how do we go to war? Oh, okay. What about a disarming surprise attack? 
Which the Japanese have done before. When oh, they, disarming surprise a, 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 a dis- Okay, right, okay. A, right, in other words, a, a surprise attack that's so devastating that it eliminates the Americans' ability to intervene at all yeah. in our further conquest. Or at the very least, for several years. For several years. Yeah. Uh, or, as it turns out, for six months. <laughs> uh, but uh, they had done this before. The, when the Japanese went, against, went to war against the Russians in 1904, they launched a surprise attack on the Russian Pacific Fleet, which was anchored at Port Arthur. Right. And was of a devastating attack. So, and by the way, the f- Japanese fleet that attacked Pearl Harbor, the uh, the flag, the, the naval ensign on the f- Japanese flagship was the same one they used in 1904. Oh wow! There's a little symbolism there. Yep. In any yep. case, so in other words, if you're going to go to war, if you've already decided you're going to go to war, you should go to war on terms that are most advantageous to you. Sure. A surprise attack. By the way, their plan was to have a formal declaration of war arrive like 20 minutes before the attack began so, oh, that, they, so, so that they could claim. Legit. It did, it did, yeah, so, yeah, so it was quote-unquote legit. didn't work out that way because the, yeah. they, they had troubles with their typist in Washington, D.C. Oh, right. Um, so it didn't work out that way. One I don't, 20 I don't minutes think, wouldn't have meant anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, right. Because in other words, so we can say, hey, we declared war first, but not to give you enough time that you could actually be prepared for the attack. Right, right. I don't think it would have mattered, right? No, because, you know. Uh, the, the Americans are upset on December 8th, 1941, because it was a surprise attack, not because there was no formal declaration of war. I mean, who yeah. cared about that? It in still any, would have been considered a surprise attack. Even exactly, if it, yeah, exactly right. right. And so that's their thinking. Their, the further thinking to the extent that they had any was that without its Pacific fleet, the United States being sort of, and here's where, and you see all this also on the German side too, these sort of assumptions in their ignorance that the United States is sort of this fat, lazy, indulgent, self-indulgent mm-hmm. power that really can't be bothered. Once it discovers that its entire fleet is at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, they'll cut a deal with us. Yeah. They'll let us have our half of the Pacific. They'll still have their half of the Pacific, and we'll sort of arrive at an agreement. And I wonder why they, 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 they thought that that would overwhelm any sort of revenge sentiment. It just seems, you know, yeah. silly. It's, it reflects complete ignorance and also arrogance. Yes, a, that's right. A, a yeah. belief that we Japanese are superior and we're the warrior class and they aren't. And then the Americans will recognize that and they'd be foolish to try and take us on, especially without a fleet. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the uh, head of the Japanese Navy, uh, Yamamoto, he fam- mm-hmm. famously, after the attack, he said, you know, I'm afraid all we've done is awaken the sleeping giant. Yeah. That was true. He also said- Oh, you uh, mean we can't put that on the quote or no quote? Uh, he, he actually said <laughs> so, that? Sorry, I yeah. already blew that one for Damn. you. Damn. Yeah. Um, he also famously said, uh, before the attack, he said, after this attack, I can sort of run wild in the Pacific for about six months. After that, I can't guarantee you anything. He says this to the Japanese. He says, "Yeah, so in leadership. Words, he had he had unlike some other Japanese leaders, he had misgivings, and turned wow. out he was right on the money, right? Because um, the uh, the attack didn't really work out for the Japanese, which we'll, no. which, we'll, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the Japanese attack it's it's a, a huge attack. It's a huge scale. It's a massive uh, carrier task force." Right. That takes a huge risk. It has to secretly sail halfway across the Pacific without being detected. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, do we know how that happens? How they're able to do that? Or is it. Well, first of all, they're operating in the North Pacific, which is this huge stretch of empty ocean where they're, you know, okay. hundreds of miles from any sort and of land. There are no such things as satellites or things like exactly that. Exactly yeah, right. right. They, right, right. they maintain radio silence, mm-hmm. so there are no radio signals to be uh, intercepted. 
there should have been, and then we can start talking about some of the American failures, there should have been uh, American combat air patrols sort of searching around Pearl Harbor at great distance in all directions. They yeah. weren't. That would have given the Americans some warning, but that was not happening. But how much warning? Not even a few hours? Oh, yeah, a couple hours, which would have been been plenty. To get everybody out. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, to get everyone armed up and ready to defend and scatter the ships, et cetera. That would have been plenty of warning. Okay. I mean, there still would have been loss of life, et cetera, but it would have been much better. I think we, as just general people, not just historians, tend to forget that, you know— because we have the movie idea of, of, of ocean horizons, but the, you know, to, to patrol the Pacific Ocean, that, ta- that takes some doing. Yeah, the Pacific. Yeah. Look at the map. The Pacific Ocean is large. Yeah, and it, you know, it'd be like trying to find and a partly, needle in a haystack. They, they pull this off just because it was so unlikely. It's so mm-hmm. it's yeah, so right. audacious. That's mm. part of the brilliance of the Japanese plan is that it's just so. I hate this phrase, but it's so outside of the box. Yeah, that right, that's, right. that's one of the reasons. In fact. Let's get into the reasons for why the Americans are caught unawares for this attack. Um, in retrospect, one of the reasons is it's a lack of imagination. Huh. Amer- Americans cannot conceive, and that's nothing against the Americans. A lot of people don't have necessary imagination. Yeah, right, they right. just can't imagine that the Japanese would do this. By the way, we had an idea that war was coming in the Pacific. We had intercepted the Japanese code. Okay, I didn't know and this. So we okay. intercepted messages, for example, that instructed Japanese diplomats in Washington to start burning their documents which is usually a telltale sign that the other country is about to go to war against you. Yeah, one of the 10 warning signs. Of- <laughs> exactly. You might be going to war yes. when... I think yeah. Hallmarks has a card based on, the, <laughs> on that concept. But be on the lookout for these warning signs. Uh, that but The assumption was that they would attack, logically, that they would attack in the Philippines, where they yeah, would attack sure. other, other right. possessions, which is much more feasible, much closer to Japan, mm-hmm. much... Uh, um, less likely to be detected than Pearl Harbor. So one of the American failures is simply a failure of imagination. Right, right. They, they couldn't possibly do this because it's just so outlandish and so risky. But there are other more concrete reasons. There are there were failures of communication. Mm-hmm. For example, you had two major uh, armed bodies protecting or sort of in the Hawaiian Islands on the American side. You had the Army and the Navy. Okay. Keep in mind that there's no independent Air Force. Right. The Air Force is part of the Army. It's the Army Air Corps. Right, right. That's uh, a nice, that's the nice. Army Air Corps and the Army was in Hawaii to protect the naval base, mm-hmm. logically enough, yeah. including large numbers of U.S. Army Air Corps aircraft. Planes, yeah. Uh, there is virtually no coordination between those two bodies. You're kidding. Believe me. it or not. The, Ameri- the American commanders, respectively, of the Navy and the Army, uh, Admiral Husband Kimmel and General Walter Short, have virtually no contact with each other. This isn't the stupid Army-Navy rivalry oh, thing, is it? Oh, that's part of it. Yikes. Yeah, and there's this is relatively early in our military history. There's no chair of the Joint Chiefs. There's no like clearinghouse for policy and ideas back in Washington. Oh. There's intense inter-service rivalry. This is another buzzkill assumption. It's not even a myth. It's just an yeah. assumption that, that these things retro- have always been around. In retrospect, you can only shake your head and say, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the army is there to protect the naval base, and you're not even meeting with each other? You're not coordinating your plans? Holy cow. So there's right there a major uh, sort of a setback for the Americans. There are other uh, failures of communication between Pearl Harbor and Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. For example, late November 1941, Washington issues to Pearl Harbor what it thinks is a pretty clear warning message. The war may be imminent. Okay. But war in general, not necessarily. War in general, but in other words, put your forces on alert. 
Right. The people in Washington assume that this includes the Navy sending out its long-range Catalina PBY float planes, which are used for reconnaissance mm-hmm. purposes. They have really long range. Send them out. The people in Washington assume that the standard procedure is to send, when I issue you yeah. orders for an alert, you send these planes out for 360-degree uh, reconnaissance around the islands. And then if the Japanese are coming, we'll detect their fleet and we'll be able to defend ourselves. Yeah. Again, well, then, you will probably only have a few hours, but even still, enough time. The people, it doesn't occur to the people in Washington to explicitly say, oh, by the way, make sure you send out your float planes. <laughs> they didn't say that. They assumed. Wow. The people in Pearl Harbor, for whatever reason, decided not to do that. They didn't think it was necessary. Sure, sure. So that's an afterwards, people like George Marshall, like, wow, I wish we'd issued more explicit orders. <laughs> but that, you know, and that's, that's not, a con- there's no conspiracy there. There's no evil there. That's no, just no, sort no. of the ran- yeah. random, common human incompetence, right? These are complex organizations. People are fallible. They make mistakes. Right, right. There were lots of those in lead up to Pearl Harbor. So there are failures of communication, failures of organization, right? No, no clear lines of jurisdiction, People, not the right people not having authority over the right other people, that sort of thing. There are also failures of intelligence. Okay. Um, you, by this, you mean the actual military intelligence. Yes, not, yeah. not, 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 I, power, not yeah. IQ. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. You know, and we have, we have broken the Japanese diplomatic code. We have a lot of information, but... Which is the reason we knew about the burning of the, the burning, documents. Exactly, order. For, okay. for example, but, um, you know, there's raw intelligence and there's an interpretation of intelligence. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the classic examples is what happens with one of those primitive radar sets that we set up shortly before Pearl Harbor that is that is scanning the skies around mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, including the morning of the attack. That is intelligence. That's information that the yeah. attack is is about to happen when these a large blip shows up on the radar set. And the people running the radar set contact a lieutenant back at the base and say, Lieutenant, there's this big blip. Which is a relatively do- low-ranking officer. Right, relatively low, and it's a Sunday morning, it's very slow and sleepy, a lot of people are still in bed, lots of people off duty, and mm-hmm. this lieutenant famously says, don't worry about it. It's birds or something. Yeah. Well, or actually, I think the belief was that it was this flight of incoming B-17s that were on their way to the Philippines. We oh, were actually American planes American coming planes. back. And they were. No in fact, if you see the movie um, Tora, 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 which is a famous movie right. about the yeah. Pearl Harbor attack, they actually have a scene where these B-17s arrive during the attack. Oh. And these American pilots are freaking out because they're, B-7, they're just shuttling the B-17s. Yeah, they're, they're not just, combat yeah. ready. They're, I don't even think they had their guns mounted. And so they fly in, in the middle of oh. this massive air raid, hundreds of Japanese planes. They were being shuttled to the Philippines. They were expected that morning in Pearl Harbor. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this, uh, this lieutenant in the army... Let's just assume that. So yeah. the, the big blip has got to be... Right, it's wishful yeah. thinking. It's sort of blinders. It's like, oh, yeah, it's got to be the B-17s. Don't worry about it. But not totally ignorant. Not the worst assumption to make. No, not, no, not at all. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I'm sure afterwards, I'm sure he regretted that, right? Oh, because yeah. Because that would have provided some early warning. And there are all sorts of little intelligence of failures like that. And there were lots of ways in which we made, based on assumptions, we made decisions which, based on those assumptions, are logical but ended up costing us. For example, the Army Air Corps planes, places, places like Hickam Field mm-hmm. on Oahu, they were famously parked wingtip to wingtip. Which, right. made, which, which made them great targets for when the Japanese bombers show up. And they don't and have to be that accurate. They, they don't have to be that accurate. They, one bomb will destroy several planes. And once their gas tanks start detonating, you're, it's going to be like you know, it's a, a chain reaction. 
And, and and then it means it's much harder for you then to have any planes that you can send up in the air against the Japanese once Absolutely. you know the, once you know the raid is under, underway. Well, this was a logical thing to do because uh, General Short and the people in the army believed that the big threat uh, was not an air raid, but rather sabotage. Oh, okay. Because you had a large Japanese, uh, Japanese population, population which, yeah. by the way, included spies that the Japanese sure, made use sure. of. That that was true. And so, if you right, you focus on what you think is the most likely threat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Planes that are wingtip to wingtip are much easier to guard against sabotage. Sure, sure. It turns out if you have an air raid, then oops, then, you yeah. wish you hadn't done that, but that was something you did based on your assumptions. So there okay, are lots so again, of little so stories not, like not, that. These aren't. This isn't colossal incompetence in, in any sense of the word. E- either this case or the radar case. No. Okay. No. So and, sometimes and, it's portrayed as that. Not, it's not colossal incompetence. I would I would portray it more as minimal routine incompetence that's widespread. Okay, okay. Because there are failures yeah. at all levels in Washington, in Hawaii, in the Army, in the Navy. The lots of little failures that add up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's very, it's very unfair to sort of focus on one little piece of this story and blow it out of proportion. Yeah, this one guy was asleep at the wheel. Yeah, exactly. And if only he had done X, Y, Z, then, you know, there's, lot, there's plenty of blame to go around. Now, after the war... Um, well, actually, during the war, Kimmel and Short were sort of... Singled out, they were um, relieved. Kimmel again is the navy he's commander. The, uh, yeah, he's the navy commander. He's the commander, uh, commander of uh, the base of Pearl. No, I'm sorry, commander of the Pacific Fleet. And, and, and short and is, the, is, the, is the army commander. They are both. Okay. They're both relieved of command. They weren't court-martialed. They weren't <laughs> taken out and shot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can make a good case that relieving them of command was the right thing to do. They yeah. were not. They were not the only guilty parties. Yeah. Certainly not. There was, like I said, there were, and, and you had to, you had to throw somebody to the wolves, basically. Well, sure. You know, you can't. Roosevelt's not going to fire himself. But they stayed in the military. Uh, yes, they stayed in the military. I don't think they were given any serious command or anything. Yeah, but they but, weren't. Um, yeah. But but they uh, they were relieved, were relieved of command, and I, you can argue that was that was legit. Well, this is the perfect place to take a little pause and hear from our new sponsor, Harry's Razors. We love Harry's Razors at at the institute. And we have a full explanation of how it's going to help you buzzkillers out there. You know, buzzkillers, we're so totally stoked that this podcast and the Buzzkill Institute is sponsored by Harry's Razors. I use Harry's Razors because they're the best around. Also, I got sick to death of the fact that the big ripoff razor companies would make a small change in their blades and get the latest version and raise their already high prices. Harry's is different. Harry's doesn't believe in upcharging. They've made their razors better and better, and their prices have remained the same. And I've been a member for over a year, long before they started sponsoring the show. Not only does Harry's charge a fraction of what the ripoff razor companies charge, the buzzkillers at Harry's mail the razors right to you on a regular schedule that you set up with your membership. So join. Harry's razors have a great soft flex hinge, gives you a more comfortable glide, a trimmer blade that I use all the time lubricating strip, and a textured handle, a real quality handle for more control when it's wet, more control overall. Their prices are still just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. They do this because they own the factory where they make the blades. They produce the highest quality razors themselves, cut out the middleman, and sell them online to you for half the price of the ripoff razors. Now, Harry's has a special offer for you buzzkillers out there. They'll send you their popular trial set for free, when you go to harrys.com, the free trial set comes with a razor, a five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. You just pay a pittance for shipping. Plus, just for my listeners, enter the code BUZZKILL at checkout, and you'll get their post-shave balm for free with your order. This post-shave balm is great. You'll look better, and your face will feel better all day 
when you use it. Your subscription plan is customizable, of course, in terms of shipping frequency, and you can cancel at any time. Uh, hold the phone, Buzzkillers. A researcher here at the Institute just handed me this historical news flash. Apparently, FDR, yes, that's right, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went to Harry's back in the early 30s, used the code Buzzkill at checkout, and got this fantastic deal that you can get. After that, he brought the country out of the Great Depression, he was elected president four times, and he helped the Allies win World War II. Coincidence? I don't think so. Sounds like cause and effect to me. Joined Harry's. Highly successful president. In fact, after joining Harry's, FDR had nothing to fear but fear itself. So do what FDR did. Go to Harry's and enter the code Buzzkill at checkout. You'll get a great razor blade, a great razor, sorry, great blades, great shave cream, and the post-shave balm is for free. Do it now, harrys.com, and you'll start enjoying a whole new world of better and more affordable shaves. You'll look better, your face will thank you, and your bank account will be a lot healthier. Now back to Pearl Harbor and Professor Nash. Okay, we're back. And Professor, if we'd had the Buzzkill bunker in, in Pearl Harbor, things might have been a place exactly. to escape, but, but we didn't. And of course, the fact that the idea that there was a Buzzkill bunker in Pearl Harbor is a myth, but there are, of course, lots of other myths the, about Pearl Harbor. The biggest myth, and I run into this with my students too. We cover mm-hmm. this in class. The students say, Dr. Nash, what about... And the big, the big myth, the the eight hundred pound myth in the middle of the room, <laughs> is that Franklin D. Roosevelt knew about the attack in advance, chose to do nothing in order to get the United States into the war. And this is sort of the backdoor to war thesis. It right. was called. In fact, there was, a, there was a book written by that title. The idea is that this would be so outrageous that there'd be no opposition on the, on the home right. front. And about- and you could uh, you could maneuver the United States into a war that you want, but that the American people don't want. You mean this isn't true? No, I'm sorry, it isn't. But it is—it's one of the great conspiracy theories in 20th century U.S. history. We ought to build a whole podcast empire around the idea of, I, this, of myths. I think we ought to. That would be—we maybe we should sit down and talk about that. Yeah. Um, there are multiple problems with this. I'll get the—I'll get the most important problem with this myth uh, off settled right off the bat and that is the fact that there's no evidence to support yeah, this idea again number one the warning biggest problem, of- I, often a problem with conspiracy theories is there's <laughs> really no good evidence for it by the way there is some good evidence for some conspiracy theories just not this one there's right. no okay. concrete evidence that roosevelt knows that the attack at pearl harbor is about to happen and he does nothing about it Right. Are, they've written entire books about this, but there is no evidence for that. That huh. alone ought to put this to bed. But there's some other problems. It's a post with this. facto explanation. Exactly, of- and that's that's the big problem here. Is what what we love to call the post hoc ergo propter hoc. In right. other words, don't confuse results with causes, causes or results with intent. The fact that this may have worked out for Roosevelt, which it didn't, by the way. But the but no, the, no, but the fact that this want what, the war, right? Yeah. But the idea that this, uh, if, even if it did work out for Roosevelt, doesn't mean he set it up to happen that way. Yeah. There's this thing in history called luck, yeah. which often plays a really big role. It's not as sexy as a conspiracy theory, but mm-hmm. it often plays a really big role. Or chance. Yeah, or chance or fate or whatever you want to call it. Uh, lots of other subsidiary problems with this, this idea. First of all, you should know the context that Roosevelt was what they called in the day a big Navy man. Yeah, yeah. He was absolutely in love with the U.S. Navy. He served for eight years as Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of Navy back mm-hmm. during the Wilson administration, 1913 to 1921. 
but he obviously wasn't a Navy veteran himself because no, he had been, no, 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 you know, no. He was not. He was. He did not serve the, in the military. The but polio, he yeah. became an early advocate of having a big Navy when he becomes president in 1933. He spends a lot of our relatively limited defense budget on building up the Navy. He loved visiting the ships. Yeah. There, he really annoyed the Army at a couple points when he'd be sitting down with Army and Navy brass, and he'd refer to the Navy as us, Ooh. and the Army as them. Ooh, yeah, awkward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That and then you know, and if I'm an army officer, them I'm thinking, sounds like, like enemy. Exactly. <laughs> what's the, what's up with that, right? And so the idea that he would sacrifice the even a, even one U.S. Navy ship, leave, leaving yeah. alone the entire U.S. Pacific Fleet, just to just to get a war, just just sort of laughable on its face. Yeah. Okay. There's another big problem with this, which is the assumption, and based on a lot, is that Roosevelt wants war not with Japan but with Germany. Right. Okay. Well, well just, uh, this just in: Germany did not attack Pearl Harbor. Oh. Japan did. Oh, I thought that that was that they were the the, the the progenitors of the telegraph problem and the and the, the radar problem. The German saboteurs. German Pearl, saboteurs. I, Pearl Harbor. I, no, blending in with the population sunning in Hawaii, them, sunning themselves <laughs> on the weekends and and and, and plotting what, against the like U.S. Sunning himself in later hosen. What's up yeah. with that? It doesn't make any sense. In other words, and you see the way this plays out, right? Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, massive immediate outrage in the United States. Yeah. Declaration war against Japan, December 8th. Right. But regarding the Germans, crickets for a few days. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had this, uh, we were were engaged in an undeclared naval war with the Germans in the Atlantic, but on December 8th, 1941, there is not, and Roosevelt knows this, there is not enough popular support for a formal declaration war against Germany. And as you, you enlightened the buzzkillers in one of our episodes about Hitler, myths about Hitler, and one of the mistakes he makes is he declares war against the United yes. States, and that's not, not necessarily the smart thing to do at he, that time anyway. He solves Roosevelt's problem for him by declaring right, war. Right. Now, ultimately in 1942, probably, you would have had a formal war between the Americans and uh, sure, Germans. Sure. That was going to happen. Yeah. But immediately after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt is very awkward. And, oh, yeah. and Hitler solves the problem for him. Hitler assumes the United States is going to be uh, have, sort of have its hands full in the Pacific. So Hitler essentially says, "What the hell? <laughs> we'll yeah. take on the United States too." Yeah. yeah. But H- Roosevelt could not have counted on that by a- allowing a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So, in other words, the I- the backdoor war thesis just falls apart on its face because of that sort of lack of logic. Yeah, and it didn't happen. You know, I mean, no. it, the, the, the declarations of war didn't fall in the way that, that the conspiracy theory would say they would exactly. fall. Exactly. The much more accurate portrayal is that Roosevelt and top U.S. policymakers, they have an inkling that there's going to be a Japanese attack somewhere. Yeah. At some point. Mm-hmm. Not, we know there's going to be a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And on December 7th. Yeah, but a, a vague idea that it's going to happen is not exactly held just by a handful of people in the Oval Office. Correct. Lots of people think Exactly. Okay. That's yeah. right. Exactly. And so, and they, logically enough, expect it or assume that it's going to happen in the Philippines. Sure. Now, as uh, we talked about in the MacArthur episode, far less excusable is the fact that uh, MacArthur's forces in the Philippines are caught by surprise nine hours after the Pearl Harbor and that's uh, always forgotten. Yeah. Yes, that's a, as I think I argued, argued at the time, that's a big blemish on MacArthur's record. But the folks at Pearl Harbor do not have that advance warning, and Roosevelt does not have that advance warning. Wow. So now, if you look at the attack itself, uh, and this is not necessarily busting a myth, but it's uh, complicating and providing some context. Uh, my argument always is that the, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor was devastating for Japan. 
Oh, for Japan. Yes, for Japan in in the big picture. Now, oh, in the big, now, okay, right. In the big at the sort of macro level. In other words, Japan is trying to get into the war in on the on the best possible uh, in the best possible circumstances. Right. It turns out they're entering the war in the worst possible circumstances. Oh, okay. So in that sense, this attack is a failure, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Now, first of all, it's certainly true that in sort of physical terms, in terms of loss of ships that were there, loss of U.S. Uh, life, it was devastating. There's no question. Okay. Um, eight battleships were either sunk or heavily damaged. The Americans lost 2,400 dead personnel. That's a devastating loss of life. That's a lot of, that's a lot of, and that's often overlooked. Often overlooked. Uh, by the way, about a thousand of those 2,400 dead on the single ship, the USS Arizona. Oh, oh. Uh, because that was a, you know, and I encourage buzzkillers if they're ever in Pearl Harbor to go to the uh, Arizona monument. It's very moving. The ship is still there. It's still leaking huge amounts of oil into Pearl Harbor, by the way. Yeah, it's an environmental yeah, problem. The uh, Amer- uh, Americans also lost about 68 dead civilians in Honolulu, often overlooked as well. How did that happen if it was not it uh, was in Pearl Harbor, not in Honolulu? Most, if not all, of those losses were the result of the fact that in their effort desperately to fight back against the air raid, American forces on board their ship, they started using their five-inch deck guns, mm-hmm. essentially firing conventional ammunition uh, at airplanes. Most of those, and the oh, five-inch okay. shell is a good-sized shell, and so these shells typically missed the Japanese airplanes and then landed in Honolulu. Oh, no. Yeah. Was, this was so the, friendly it, it fire. Was essentially a friendly fire incident, so significant oh. uh, property and, uh, and loss of life in Honolulu as sort of a, as a collateral damage, as you might say. Hundreds of U.S. aircraft were destroyed on the ground. The Japanese only lost 29 aircraft shot down. Uh, most mm-hmm. of them in the second wave. The second wave was fought, faced with much more opposition. Sure, because yeah, but right. the Americans were not in a good position to fight back. Generally, a lot of uh, a lot of anti-aircraft air ammunition was under lock and key, basically not at mm-hmm. the guns. Um, it was a very chaotic response. Americans fought very, by the way, very bravely, but they were sure. sort of had one hand tied behind their back for the actual attack. But then, when the smoke clears you start to notice that how this didn't go very well for the Japanese at all. First of all, our three aircraft carriers in the Pacific fleet were not at Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Something that, by the way, was by chance, but the conspiracy theorists love that. That FDR sent them out on purpose so they wouldn't be destroyed. They weren't there. And I just learned this. The Japanese knew they weren't there. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, oh, know, I didn't that. know that either. They knew okay. that because, you know, they had their intelligence sources on the ground who would have sure. told them yeah. within, you know, relatively short notice, look, those aircraft carriers aren't here. Japanese didn't care. They went ahead with the attack. And part, I'm assuming partly what's going on here is that the Japanese Navy, like most navies, including ours, mm-hmm. still at this point, 1940-41, had not fully grasped that the future of naval combat is aircraft carriers and not battleships. Sure. Because and, and and that's one of the things that we it's it's cultural. We Navy, think of as a, navies were all about battleships. The plum yeah. position is captain of a battleship. Those are the yeah. big capital ships. Those were the those were the those were the main forces going back decades, well past World War One into the nineteenth century. Even like though we the, think of the, World the War One as, the, 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 as World War One as uh, battleships as a World War One weapon, and aircraft carriers as a World right. War Two weapon. And so everyone is everyone is building aircraft carriers. By the way, if you look at the British attack on the Italian base at Taranto in late 1940, that was an extremely successful surprise attack from carrier launched aircraft. But that really doesn't sink in, even among the Japanese. The Japanese, when in in the mind of Japanese naval leaders, a devastating, disarming strike against the Americans is wipe out their battleships. 
even though it should be obvious to them because they launched the planes from aircraft carriers. You would think you're not fully realizing what you yourself are doing. Yeah, and by the astounding. end of the war in, in uh, the Pacific, the battleships are second or third fiddle at best. Hmm. And the hmm. major, the the way you project naval power is aircraft carriers. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not even six months. May nineteen forty two, you have the Battle of the Coral Sea, which is the first major naval uh, battle in history where the two fleets don't see each other. That's right, and we, I remember building models in my youth <laughs> around those aircraft carriers, and literally, you know, the, the right. glue and plastic. And that it, the battle's a draw, but both sides launch their car- uh, aircraft carrier-based airplanes, and then they go after each other's fleets without ever coming in within that's visual a, contact. Yeah, that's amazing. That's the future of naval warfare. So that worked out for the Americans, but it's much worse than that in other ways. The Japanese did not touch the naval, uh, sorry, the uh, the oil storage facilities at Pearl Harbor. These massive. Oh, uh, massive oil storage tanks. This was where they stored the fuel for the Pacific Fleet. And ironically, one of the causes of Japanese anger at the exactly U.S. is right. the oil they embargo. They didn't right? touch them. And by the way, afterwards, the Americans said, had those all been destroyed, the Pacific Fleet, the remainder of it, including the aircraft carriers, would have had to relocate to San Diego. Holy cow. For months. Because they wouldn't be able to operate out of Pearl Harbor because they had no, have no fuel there. Which also means they're twice as far away from exactly the Pacific right. theater and as so they And so in other be. words, if, so this, this, is, this is a big piece of the Japanese failure. If your goal is to make it so the Americans can't intervene in the Pacific, you want to make it so the Americans have to retreat to California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you didn't touch the oil, which you easily could have done with your attacking force, by yeah. the way. Not try to sink the battleships, destroy, destroy the, the oil. oil. Destroy the oil. Wow. Uh, the other problems, Pearl Harbor is a very shallow harbor. Mm-hmm. Six of the eight battleships were repaired. Only, really? Only the Arizona and I believe the Oklahoma were destroyed beyond repair. When and by the way, and by the way, one of the battleships was the Utah, which was out of commission. It was a target ship, so that really doesn't count. Oh! But the other five that count were successfully refloated and repaired and played played roles in the Pacific War later on. That's amazing. So the, even the ships they destroyed, so to speak, were I've were, seen photographs. I've seen photographs from Pearl Harbor, December eleventh, nineteen forty one. Mm-hmm. Four hours after the attack. Huge construction crews are out there. They're clearing wreckage. They're pouring uh, concrete. They're they're make, making good on the loss. Days later, by Those the way, not glorious Seabees. Absolutely. Construction. Wait a minute, you, you said four hours. You meant most of them at forty. Four, four, uh, four, four days. Four days. Yeah, four days yeah, is what yeah, I meant. Yeah. But yeah, but the, immediately in other words, the American recovery, which often gets overlooked, is. Amazing. Yeah, those postcodes out there looking for dissertation topics. This is fascinating. <laughs> there, you, fascinating. there you go. Absolutely. December 8th to December 11th. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, what else? Oh, they did. the Japanese didn't touch any of the repair facilities, the dry docks. Yeah, so yeah. those damaged yeah. battleships uh, could be uh, easily repaired. The Japanese failed to invade the Hawaiian Islands, which even, wow. if it, even if it were just a raid, we were so thin on the ground that had the aircraft carrier task force had an invasion force along with it. Mm-hmm. That might have changed the story a great deal. But that would have, I presume, had to bring them a lot closer and right, would but, have to be more likely to be detected. Right. Now, could, yeah. Um, no, not necessarily. No, oh, I mean, because okay. the force was already huge. All right. All right. I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, the yeah, numbers yeah, of the yeah. fleet. You already had dozens, you have dozens about of, it dozens anyway. of right. Exactly. Dozens of ships. Um, and on the other hand, what you have done with this surprise attack and huge loss of life is that you have shocked America out of his complacency. And that's when Yamamoto is right on the money and says, all you've done is awakened a sleeping giant. In other words, if you had just issued a formal declaration of war and not attacked, yeah. Americans would have been, oh, okay, I guess we got to go fight the Japanese. But now that you've destroyed the fleet and killed all these Americans sort of mm. in their sleep, as it were, yeah. 
you have you really have awakened the sleeping giant. You've totally misjudged the Americans. You've pissed them off like they've never been pissed off in their in their history. You have overnight ended the ongoing fundamental debate between isolationists and internationalists. There had been a debate in the United States about going to war or challenging the Germans and the Japanese, right? Should we just have Fortress America? Should we aid our allies, et cetera? That debate ends, at least in the Pacific, uh, as of December 7th. Yep. Um, everyone's on board, except Jeanette Rankin. She's the one who votes against the Declaration of War in the House of Representatives. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, and by the way, unlike our entry into World War I, which was, di- was, was disputed, and there were people who voted against that in both the Senate and the House. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Uh, everyone was on board for war against Japan on December 8th, uh, the day that will live in infamy, as yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. FDR famously said. The American people are united, not only united, but out for blood, mm-hmm. looking not just to defeat the Japanese, but to crush the Japanese. And that's what okay. the Japanese really had. And that's a major miscalculation. That yeah, you've got your you've got your very good uh, navy. By the way, Japanese naval aviation in 1941 was best in the world. Right. Okay. That's uh, their their are and their army was as as the buzzkillers. I'm sure they know was incredibly good, incredibly tenacious. Right, right. Went down super super hard in the Pacific. But the idea and that they're, they're, they're battle hardened because of their, their yeah. empire building in Asia and in, in, in China. Yeah. And yeah, you, yeah. See, you see this in the campaign against the British in Malaya and Singapore, by the way, those are, those are veteran Japanese troops mm-hmm. who, who do an amazing job. So Japan's going to go down very hard, but the Americans are also going to fight very, very hard. The Americans, sure, are, Americans yeah. are going to be incredibly tenacious. The Americans are going to put up with enormous sacrifices, taking down the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And partly it's because they're all got this rallying cry called remember the seventh. Right. Okay. You see it in all sorts of posters. And oh, that was actually the phrase. Remember, remember the, the seventh. I've actually okay. seen the, the posters, uh, recruiting posters, uh, war bond drives. They all use this phrase. Right, and this is an entire generation that's been traumatized by this event. Uh, sure. Sort of like for nine eleven is for us, or the Kennedy mm-hmm. assassination for like the, the the older generation, for the World War Two generation. Every single person could tell you where they were when they found out about the Pearl Harbor attack. Oh, right, right. Because right. it was stunning. It was traumatizing. And everyone got fired up. Um, there were other events like the Bataan Death March, other Japanese sure. atrocities, which fueled this. This helps fuel uh, American activity in the Pacific. I strongly recommend a book uh, by John Dower. It came about about 30 years ago called War Without Mercy. Okay. It's about the extent to which on both sides, the war in the Pacific was a race war. And, hmm. In other words, a, a war based on racism that was mutual yeah, yeah. and led to mutual atrocities, including atrocities by Americans. Right, and part this is partly fueled by racism that already existed, but partly fueled by a desire for re- revenge for Pearl Harbor. Right, uh, right. I, I'm always impressed by a couple of the factoids from late in the war, where a Gallup poll from November 1944 showed that 13 percent of Americans wanted to exterminate all Japanese on the planet. Every last Japanese man, woman, and child. Thirteen, almost a fifth. Uh, yeah. Well, we're now, now, you, way now, up. now, I mean, glass half full, half empty. You, uh, you could argue that, considering the context, the fact that eighty-seven percent are not down with Good, that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. impressive. But still, that's some bloodthirstiness. The other one is a a poll from right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where I think it was a north of twenty percent of Americans wanted the war to last longer so they could drop more atomic bombs. Oh. Now, how how can you explain that? Yeah, no, yeah. A, yeah, a racism, but B, a desire, just yeah. this sort of this sort of a uh, base urge for revenge, right? Sure. That you, you you want you want to release all this rage you have pent up against, Pro- against and, Japan. and probably stronger than the rage against the Germans. Yeah. 
I mean, look because at, there hadn't been an attack on Staten Island. Yeah, I mean, look what happens in the 1960s when you start to see the first Toyotas, Toyotas and Datsuns, oh, as they were oh, as they were then called, oh, coming to the United oh, States, oh, and how categorically Americans refused to buy those cars because they're Japanese. Absolutely, the younger buzzkillers won't remember that, but we remember that clearly. Absolutely. I mean, you weren't called a traitor for buying right. them, but people were definitely. But r- rice them. burners, as they called That's them. That's right. Yeah. yeah, rice rockets. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And what and what's going on there? A lot of that has to do with Pearl Harbor. So it's really hard to. There are other things too, but it's hard yeah. to exaggerate the role of Pearl Harbor at sort of that cultural level. This is amazing how Pearl Harbor's you know this cultural touchstone. What else? What else happens? Uh, you see it in, I mean, I was always struck by this one photograph I saw uh, from the 1950s when buzzkillers are probably aware in the 50s during the Cold War, the threat, mm. threat of World War III, the threat of nuclear attack in the United States. You had a lot of people build uh, or express interest in building backyard bomb shelters. Oh, really? Right. Okay. Well, I, I knew the bomb shelters, but I didn't know they, they, they tied it to World War II. They did, at least in this one case that I'm familiar with. Uh, they sometimes, the, the firms that built these bomb shelters sometimes had these sort of sales meetings the way, sort of like the way they sold Tupperware. Mm-hmm. In other words, you'd have like a regional rep who comes to someone's house where they've agreed to have a neighborhood sales session. Tupperware party. You know, yeah. and they set up the folding chairs in the backyard and mm. um, people would come around and this person would sell, try to sell you on the benefits of, of thinking you can protect yourself in World War III, even though you can't. Of nuclear weapons. <laughs> exactly right. Good luck with that. Well, I mean, I don't know about you. I'm, I've caught the tail end of the, the duck and cover drills in... I don't and, remember them, but it must be because I'm slightly older than you. I must have done them. I yeah, don't remember them, though. Yeah, but it's like, like, yeah, your desk is going to protect you from World War III. I yeah, thought that was yeah, kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. In any case, at this one sales pitch, they had this big uh, sort of mini billboard behind the salesperson. And the, the slogan, the tagline was, don't let Pearl Harbor happen to you. Now, this was at least 10 years uh, after. More, more than that, closer to 20 years after, after that. The, wow. And in other words, this is someone who has made a decision that the way to sell people on bomb shelters is to touch the Pearl Harbor nerve in their psyche. Hmm. And by the way, it, it shapes a lot of, it's not just cultural level, it shapes a lot of post-war, Cold War national security policy, which is this obsession with preparedness. Right, right. And the right, idea that right. we, for example, we need, a, we need a permanent large military establishment of the type we have today, by the way. Uh, rather than having a small peacetime establishment that you gear up for. Mm-hmm. And it's because of Pearl Harbor. We were devastated by the surprise attack, and so you always have to be prepared so at, at help, all times. Does this help account for the sort of wider net of listening stations and radar posts Absolutely. sent out to Aleutian Islands? Now, the and game, then, of course, satellites yes, later. Yes, yeah. and, and you're right. I mean, the game Technologically, the game has changed, right? Mm-hmm. A Soviet ICBM only takes 30 minutes to cross the polarized cap and hit targets in the United yeah. States. I mean, you don't have any warning time. By the way, it's one of the reasons we don't have declarations of war anymore. Oh, right. Uh, Korea was even Korea. We didn't declare war. World War II was the last time we declared war. Um, oh no, kidding! So of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. None of that's declared. This just in. This just in. Yeah. We've gone to war a bunch of times since 1945, but we don't yeah. declare them. And partly, it's this preparedness and readiness thing, right? In other words, we we don't have the time to have a declaration of war. That's fascinating. I think it's a lot of crap in a lot of in a lot of cases, but and this is partly because of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, the 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 specter of surprise attack has a huge impact on the American psyche. I would argue. Mm-hmm. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. So not only do we have – this in some ways makes Pearl Harbor much a much bigger deal, for instance, than I had thought of it as before. Sure. It was a very big right. deal, but I didn't think of its, its impact long into the, into the right. 50s. Right. 60s. It's not just, oh, everyone remembers where they were. Right, which right, is, right, which right. Is, which is something in and of itself. But it has yeah. this broader uh, cultural impact, the idea that, well, don't ever get – now, there are other – 
sort of tropes from World War II that we that we expand way beyond. Uh, I would argue their their legit in, importance, like the Munich idea, right? Like, right, right. You don't nego- up, yeah. right. You don't negotiate with the bad guys, right? Or you, yeah. know, you fight tooth and nail because every bad guy is Hitler, essentially. This is Munich all over again, exactly. Right. But the but the Pearl Harbor is is an equally important analogy that people use, and in some cases overuse in the post war period. Well, certainly, and and way back before that, remember the Maine. Right. Uh, I don't know how long that would have lasted, but in, in people weren't building bomb shelters right. in the teens. But it is it is a f- remember the boom, whatever exactly. is very or very remember powerful. the Alamo right, 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 uh, right. And, or cl- uh, close to my heart is the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where one of the reasons we don't launch a military attack against the Soviet missiles that have been placed in Cuba in October 1962. Yeah, uh, it's pretty clear from the evidence that one of the reasons we don't do that is the moral aspect. In other words, uh, Bobby Kennedy famously says, now I know how Tojo felt before Pearl Harbor. Oh, no kidding. And that, now, yeah. now, there were some legit concrete reasons we don't launch that attack, yeah, like sure. the fear yeah. of nuclear devastation. Yeah. But there <laughs> is there, there's this other layer that basically uh, surprise attack is not cricket. Surprise yeah. attack is something the Japanese did. Look at how upset we were. We don't do that. We don't play that it's way. It's un-American. Right. And so that, and what's that? Uh, 21 years after Pearl Harbor. Wow. And remember, these are all, this is all the World War II generation. John F. Kennedy and a lot of his advisors are sort yeah, of the- Had uh, been veterans. Oh, well, and just sort of the junior officers of World mm. War II who have now come to power. Mm. And so mm. they've all been shaped by that as well. It, it, it helps create their foreign policy mindset. Absolutely right. Well, Pearl Harbor is not only, uh, it means so much more in what we've talked about at the time and even 20 years later, but it's exactly the type of, these myths we've talked about, Exactly the type of thing we like to do in the show, which is ex- not only complicate the situation so people don't make easy assumptions, but it expands the significance of this. I, mean, no, exactly. I can't imagine anyone yep. thinks about Pearl Harbor in this way, and now they will. There are certain events which are so large and have such an impact that you, can, that, you, you that the society doesn't just get over them, quote unquote. Right, they right. They have a lasting right. impact, and, and in lots of unpredictable ways. Well, of course. Thank you so much, Professor we're coming in again, coming back after uh, so many episodes, and they're absolutely fantastic. And of course, they make us think differently, which is what we're trying to do here. It's always a pleasure. Talk to you next week. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.